0: 20s, there's an ocean of hours, and if you waste time doing bullshit, doesn't matter, there's an ocean of hours ahead of you. When you're in your 30s, there's a huge lake of hours, um, and when, now that I'm in my 50s, there's a very large dam of hours. I've got plenty of time left, but not as much time as I used to have, and I want to tell the stories that I want to tell.
1: My name's Andrew Lee, and welcome to The Good Life, a politics-free podcast about living a happy, healthy and ethical life. In this podcast, we seek out wise men and women who have lessons to teach us about living life to the full with humour, pleasure, meaning and love. We'll chat with musicians and athletes, CEOs and carers about making the most of this one precious life. If you like this podcast, please take a moment to tell your friends or rate us on Apple Podcasts. Now, sit back and enjoy the conversation. Peter Fitzsimons sometimes seems to have it all. A former wallaby who played seven tests at lock for Australia, he's worked as a breakfast radio host, has a regular newspaper column, speaks four languages, heads the Australian Republican movement and is a popular after-dinner speaker. But with 32 books to his name, Peter is best known as Australia's best-selling non-fiction writer. He's written biographies of Douglas Mawson, Ned Kelly, Kim Beasley, Nick Farr-Jones, John Eales, Nancy Wake, Steve Waugh, Charles Kingsford-Smith and Les Darcy. His books also include Tobruk, Kokoda, Batavia, Eureka, Gallipoli, Framels and Poziers, and Victory at Villers-Bretonneux. On a more personal note, he's written a book about his childhood, a simpler time, and a diet book, The Great Aussie Bloke Down. Peter, welcome
0: to the podcast. Andrew, that's a very interesting intro, thank you. You and I should declare that even though you and I haven't known each other forever, you've known my brother Andrew forever.
1: That's right, a childhood friend of the family.
0: There's a photo of you, I think, as a two-year-old on my brother's back in a backpack, is there not? (laughs) I think there might well be.
1: Now, you and Andrew's father fought uh, in World War II, and, uh, including El Alamein, and your mother served in Bougainville. Is their experience where your fascination with war stories uh, comes from? That's a
0: very interesting question. My, my sister, Trish, who's two years older than me exactly, she says that when she reads my books, she can hear my father talking, that I, I like that language of the way they use So I grew up in a house, youngest of seven children, on a farm north of Sydney at Pete's Ridge. And I always say mum and dad grew oranges, lemons, tomatoes and children of which I was the youngest and and longest. I mean, the family gag is I was so long when I was born. Mum says I was born on the 27th, the 28th and the 29th of June, 1961. (laughs) And my parents were, dad was 45, 46 when I was born, mum was 41, about 42 And they, when I was at school, they were the age of my friends' grandparents. So I throw to that generation. And when I'm talking now to 95-year-olds and 100-year-old people, I feel strong. I feel like I know you. I understand where you're from, what you're about, and I feel very comfortable talking to older people. I was always very comfortable and still am talking to World War II veterans. And I always say my breakthrough book in terms of military stuff Every book that I do, I have a bit of a commercial imperative, okay? Writing books is hard yakka. I absolutely love it, but I want a commercial return. I'm guided, you know, will this sell and sell well? The only exception to that was my book on Nancy Wake, The War Heroine, where I looked at it and I thought, well, look, it's just not gonna sell. But I don't care. It will please the spirit of my late parents, both of whom served in the Second World War. So I embarked writing this biography of this 91-year-old woman, an extraordinary woman. Mm. And I thought it would sell five or 10,000. It's since sold 200,000. And it was the first clue I had, and my publisher had, that there was a hunger for Australian stories told in the Australian vernacular as if around the Australian campfire, about Australians. And as opposed to sort of warmed-over English stories or American stories or whatever, but really... And I I take a bit of flack here and there, I don't particularly mind, of my Australianisms, my colloquialisms, the way I tell it. I mean, my wife always chips me about a particular line that I had in my biography of Kim Beasley. And it was the opener of Chapter 4 and the opening... Line was Parliament House, you little ba ute, and that's an Australian vernacular, of course. But that was the approach someone sort of that was Kim. Would well, you know Kim Beasley very well? Mm. I mean, that was his his zest, you know, Parliament House, you bloody beauty. And she chips me to say that is way too ocker, way too uh over the top. But I st- stand behind it. I mean, I, I, um. And I, I stray, I stray into that Australian vernacular, perhaps sometimes too much. I got a really good review of my Burke and Wills book in the Australian on Saturday. However, the reviewer did take out a lot, you know did take one line and said you know sometimes he goes too far and at one point the people that were going out after Burke and Wills to, to find them ran out of water and I wrote, uh, you know it was time. They had to take the piss. They had to drink their own urine, etc. I just couldn't resist. And oh, I admit that in, <laughs> that in isolation in that review, that did maybe jar a bit. Maybe I shouldn't have done that. But at the time, I always remember a line Nancy Wake said to me, which was, before I started, she said, I do not want this book to be death and destruction it has to, all death and destruction it has to include love and laughter because my war was filled with death destruction and love and laughter and so even when I'm writing serious stuff I, I don't mind the odd humorous stuff if it, it is representative of the times.
1: At the household you grew up in, you've, uh, you've said that every meal was like a tutorial and uh, spoken about your, your father's love of Kipling and yeah. Patterson, Patterson and the Gettysburg Address. Yeah. Uh, was, was that the sense that the stories just infused the dinner table? It
0: is interesting because speaking of my brother Andrew, who's principal at Dapto High School, he knows all there is to know about plants about weather patterns, about, about farming, about environment, all of those stuff. And a lot of those lessons came from my mother and father. And so do my brothers and sisters. So deciduous and eucalypts and somehow or other, I grew up in exactly the same house, but none of that penetrated my skull. If a deciduous plant bit me on the bottom, I wouldn't know it was a deciduous plant. <laughs> I just, I doesn't, I didn't just, didn't register. However, Everything that Dad taught us about poetry, all those poems, somehow or other, that got into my bones. Moving at the station for the word to pass around that the cult from old regret had got away. She joined the wild bush horses and was worth a £1,000 and all the cracks had gathered to the fray. And when you get to the climactic moment of Man from Snowy River when they reached the mountain summit. Even Clancy took a pull, for it well might make the boldest hold their breath. For the hidden ground was full of wombat holes, and any slip meant death. But the man from Snowy River let the pony have his head. He swung his stock whip round and gave a cheer, and he raced it down the mountain like a torrent down its bed, while the others stood and watched in very fear. And somehow, Dad teaching us those poems, that, rhythm, that Australian rhythm of storytelling, somehow or other, that's what penetrated me. Whereas everything Dad taught us about planning and Mum taught taught us about cooking and all that, nothing got through.
1: And your parents had this uh, extraordinary love for one another. Uh, I think one of my favourite bits in the simplest simpler time is where you talk about uh, him greeting the news that she would marry him with a, a letter containing the word wacko. Yes. Uh, and yes. her saying that uh, of the move from uh, relative luxury in Wurunga to more of a uh, Spartan life in Pete's Ridge, that she would have lived with your dad yep. in a cave. She
0: always said to that uh, uh, that I would have lived with your father in a cave, and the Families, the most cherished family story of all that is when mum was dying and you and I are speaking on the day after the euthanasia bill has passed the upper house in Victoria and I think most people who've nursed the dying parent would be on the side of euthanasia if you see them spiral down over a long time. But anyway, mum died on the 5th of July 1994 and with two days to go in her last hours of being compass being able to speak my sisters helped her to the bathroom and mum was high on morphine and mum said to my sister is there anything is there anything you want to ask me and my sister Kathy said mum what's the best thing that's happened in your life and mum said huh mum what's the best thing that's happened in your life and mum they go sex with your father (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> and it it is a fabulous it was a fabulous response because it was the first time in her life to us children she'd acknowledged that there had been sex with the father with our father you know she was a she was a, a Warunga woman of the 1920s one did not discuss sexuality and I've told the story many times but an absolutely true story at one point I said to mum. What? How did, how did you and Dad sort out Santa Claus? What, what, you know, you had six, seven of us in the house. I lost a brother um, before I was born, so six in the house at any one time. But, you know, how did you do Santa Claus? And Mum would not acknowledge to me that Santa Claus was not real, was scarified by the question, and and it did not matter to her that at that time I was already old enough, I kid you not, to have been sent from the field against the All Blacks for violence. You know, <laughs> I was 29 years old when I asked her that question and she wouldn't acknowledge it. And so she was like that. She wanted the fantasy world to continue. But the on, the on the issue of sexuality, very, very conservative. But what a fabulous thing that at the end of, of her life, having been married to dad from 1948 till when he died in 1992, Dot three carry one subtract two. Forty-four years that you, on your dying breath, could say that was the best thing of my life, making love to my husband. Geez, we we cherish that, and my auntie Mary, ninety years old, does not cherish that. She she she, <laughs> she she was she was appalled and said, "My sister never would have said such a thing." And we said, "Yes, she did, Auntie Mary," and we are very proud of it.
1: So uh, amidst the seven children, the loss of your, uh, your, your, your younger brother, uh, the burnt toast, uh, the, uh, the battle with depression that your father went mm. through, um, you've said that the greatest thing that your parents were able to do was to make each child feel as though yes. they were loved more than any other child. Yeah, How did they do that?
0: That's very interesting. It's a really interesting question, and I think, you know, people are kind to say that I'm a good family man, and I I think I am a fairly good family man, but I tell you what, I always measure myself against, I have always measured the parenting I have given to our three children against the parenting I received, and I do not get close. I mean, and all my brothers and sisters feel the same. We look, we talk now about how extraordinary our parents were. We never saw them argue. They put their head on the pillow where we were 365 nights a year. They were totally devoted to us. They were so wise in their counsel. And I did feel, like when mum, I mentioned mum, being with mum, you know, with all my brothers and sisters, but mum had a conversation just not long before she died and she said something to me along the lines. as She said, I feel, Pete, that you'll need me more than any of any of the children. I don't know. I don't know why she said that. And I often think about her saying that and I think she was right but I really miss her. But I miss Dad too. And it there was never any sense of, even though there were six of us, of them lacking time for us, you know, and they always had time and I again I think I I I try to I'll go from here to my son's place in Marrickville and have a chat in the sun, another cup of tea, and you know, we'll we'll sort a few things through. But I suppose at the end of that, I've got to be, um, I've got to finish a column, and I've got to speak at the yacht squadron tonight, and I will, I'll be with him for a couple of hours. But I, I would hope that he will say the same of me—that I always have time for him because I've always tried to make time. But, but. We had this blessed childhood. You you will remember the issue leading into the Royal Commission into Child Abuse, that it was led in part by Joanne McCarthy, a very powerful journalist from the Newcastle Herald. And she, before that got got started, she asked me to go up to the Newcastle Workers' Club one Sunday morning and speak about... uh, why we there should be an inquiry into sexual abuse and I I you know because I'd written a fair bit about it, anyway I turned up and there were seven people on stage and the six men before me, oh God they gave the details of the abuse that they had suffered for years and years, and I just sat there and I and I when well, I stood up and I said look you know. I do think we should the line that I used was you know for evil, Edmund Burke's line that the only thing that for evil to triumph is for good men to do nothing, and we, hearing these stories, we must do what we can to make it happen, make make it happen. And so it did. But listening to those stories, I always thought that I was blessed to have the parents that I did, to have the upbringing that I did but listening to the shocking abuse that they had had. And you hear so much of it around and about, and the poverty and lack of education and beatings and sexual abuse. And I said, you know, like, the line is that if you had a happy childhood, you remember the sun shining. If you had an unhappy childhood, you remember wet Wednesday afternoons, trudging home from school. When I think back on that childhood on that farm... The sun was always shining and I was, you know, the, the light and love and warmth of our parents just shone upon us always. And I don't know why it was they were so good and so wise. Dad was a very Christian man and ironic, I guess, that I, I uh, don't mind writing the odd thing about the, the sheer transparent nonsense of all religion. <laughs> but, <laughs> but, you know, it, they were very, very good people.
1: You decided about a decade ago to become a stay-at-home dad to your three children, Jack, Louie and Billy. How did have you found that?
0: Uh, best personal decision I've ever made. So I was doing Mike and Fitz with Mike Carlton. Funnily enough, you and I are talking, I'm at the end, if I'm a bit jaded, I'm at the end of a 12-day tour uh, around the country promoting my book on Burke and Wills. And part of it was to go into 5AA with David Pendethy uh, breakfast with his partner Wilco, and you know, so I just I riffed with them for thirty minutes. You know, open microphones, bang, coming up after the break, we do this and what about that, and I reminder, I used to just love that with Carlton, and we started out, for, we started out ten points behind Alan Jones, uh, who was on your former coach, my former coach, um, and and we ended up five points behind him, and I loved it, but it was it was so totally exhausting, and then Lisa Lisa started the today show 23rd of may 2007 and one of our children started to wobble uh, shortly after both of us were out of the house so we did everything we could to sort it we'd had you know we had somebody coming in at four o'clock in the morning to get the kids up and get them to school to sort everything out but we'd be home as soon as we could but the truth of it was we were exhausted and i when he was wobbling I ended up at the end of 2007. I wrote a resignation letter to TUe, which said, "Look, we have discovered that a family can cope with two parents out of bed at 3am, but they cannot prosper." And so, when I look back upon that, that was a real because he he sorted himself out very quickly thereafter, and it wasn't remotely his fault. It was our fault, and I think most of the most of the times when you know that sort of stuff, when you look at your kids wobbling, it's often. You know, what are we doing? What are we doing wrong? And not that, not that you know, like you have a, a dear friend of mine is is a fantastic father with his fantastic wife and parents and they've got a child that's, you know, has really gone all over the road. And it sometimes it does happen with a bolt of lightning. But in terms of my experience there, that was a really good decision to walk away from that, not to be perpetually tired, perpetually grouchy, but to have the energy to put in... To, to him.
1: How do you go about trying to teach resilience to your children, that uh, oh. that sort of Kipling notion of meeting triumph and disaster just the same?
0: If you can keep your head when all about you are losing theirs, if you can trust yourself when all men doubt you, and take that hander too, if you can meet with triumph and disaster and treat those two imposters just the same, yours is the world and everything that's in it, and what is more, you will be a man, my son. I missed out a couple of lines there. But anyway, um, again, taught to me by Dad. Again, a very interesting question. I, I don't know, and I don't know that I have. You know, like, it's, it's resilience I look at sometimes. I mean, again, Lisa has, as you all have noted perhaps in the media, has, you know, changed stations recently. And the, and the, the, the pressure that goes with that and I suppose you know I've lived a little fair chunks of my life under a book deadline. Anytime I look up there's a book deadline coming my way Um, and columns and all that and I love that life. I absolutely love it. You know I I have I fill a role as pro-chancellor at Sydney University and one of my stump speeches that I say when I graduate engineers and doctors and lawyers in the great hall at sydney university is i say look this is a great day for you and i appreciate that and well done fantastic but well i have two things i say one is and all of all of you up the front that i've just given university medals to and doctorates and master's degrees fantastic congratulations but you're not my people my people are you poor bastards up the back who've scraped through on the hairs of your chinny chin chin that was me second year arts was the toughest three years of my life but I got there but I say but the thing I say was that the you'll know you're in the right job or the wrong job by the clock on the wall if you look to the clock on the wall and you're wanting to speed up so you can go home You want Tuesday to be Friday, so you can go home. August, you want it to be December, so you can go home. You're in the wrong gig. You'll know you're in the right career when you look to the clock on the wall and you're wanting it to slow down because you want more time, more energy to go into the work you're doing. And again, I have been really blessed that at the age of 26, on the 30th of May, 1987, I was published in the Sydney Morning Herald top of the back page story on rugby my life changed and I've never really wanted to do anything else I wanted to do other things but the Herald I've been with the Herald now for 30 years and you know hopefully I'll get 40 years up I don't know but writing and that life of writing and broadcasting and doing books I just I don't nothing I don't know that anything could get close to the pleasure I get out of it and in terms of your question of the resilience required Things do go wrong. You do have days where you just, you know, God, you know, I mean, you and I are talking for 45 minutes. When I turn on my phone shortly, there will be 25 emails, and I'm sure you live that life too, and you can't keep up. But the resilience, again, I think I learnt from my father, which was when you were going through tough times, Dad's great line was, ''It will pass.'' And so it does. And I try the best I can to pass that on to my kids.
1: One of the interesting things... The decisions you've made in the last decade uh, reminds me of something that the Stoic philosophers used to do. They used to have a, a habit of putting on unfashionable garb and going out into the public square <laughs> in order that they not be worried by uh, little li- little criticisms that came
0: at them from others. Um, That's a very interesting. Is that true? The Stoic philosophers would make dickheads of themselves by wearing bandanas or the like. Is that
1: is that? <laughs> you've worked out where I'm going. But is that right? So, is that
0: right? I like that.
1: Yes, and the, the, no, the notion being that uh, if you're going to do big things, you need to be ready for criticisms. If you're too worried about what others think of you, then you, do, you don't stri- strive for, uh, for greatness. Mm-hmm. Um, your choice of the, uh, of the red bandana uh, seems, seems to have a little of that flavour and, and is indeed uh, inspired by a uh, French rugby coach, I understand.
0: Yeah, it's a very, that's a very interesting story. I like that story. I mean, I, it surprises even me. I don't quite know why I do it particularly, but I know, all I know is that I don't mind the flack. And we were, yes, the seeds of it when I was playing rugby in France, which was a really formative period of my life. I mean, just wonderful four years, living right in the heart of France by the village of Donzenac, surrounded by wonderful French people. There are two women there still who are like my sisters, and they call me their brother, mon frère, and they are mes And, you know, their kids and my kids exchange bedrips. They come and stay and my kids go there. Um, But there was a rugby coach by the name of Daniel Herrero, who was the coach of Toulon. And I just used to look at him. I didn't know him particularly well, but he was a well-known figure in French rugby. And he had huge, bushy hair and a huge, bushy beard. And he had a red thing, just a band, not a bandana, but just a, like a red straight band around the front of his head to keep his unruly hair down. And he had braces, and he was sort of always colourful. And I used to look at him, and I did never, I never thought to myself, "Geez, you know, I want to look like that when I'm that age." But it just somehow. Um, that it spoke to me, somehow it planted seeds, that 2007, which is to say uh, 20 years later when I was in Cuba with my wife and kids, My eldest Jake picked out a bandana uh, down at the bazaar in Havana Harbour and said, Dad, I think you'd look good in that. And I said, I looked and I put it on. He taught me how to tie it and I put it on. And um, he said, Dad, that looks great. And Louis, our second, said, Dad, you look really good. And daughter said, Daddy, that looks really good. And then the, the German judge, the toughest judge of the lot, my wife, Looked and said, darling, that is just you. And I looked and I said, "Geez, I think that's, that, does, that does look good. And as I use, I use this line many times, but it's the truth, I appreciate that we are the only five that think so. But I don't care. And the point of it is, you know, there actually is a reason for to wear a bandana if you're a bald man. Um, and that is that when I, play, when I play tennis, it keeps the sun off my pate, it soaks up the perspiration. When it's a cold night, when I'm coming out of basketball um, on a, late on a Wednesday night, it keeps my head warm. It, it does everything that hair used to do. Um, Andrew Denton says it makes me look like a prisoner on, on day leave from Long Bay trying to go straight, but don't try me. And I think there's truth in that. I tell the story that when once, maybe two, three years ago, I'd come out of Crowsnest Basketball Centre at about 11.30 at night, with a late game on my own, and there was a gaggle of... Boys, 17 or 18-year-olds in you know, a bus stop nearby as I walked to my car. And they saw me, and there was a bit of a rumble, 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 and I thought to myself, first of all, I thought, geez, there's six or seven of them, and I'm on my own. And on the other hand, I thought, hang on, I've been sent off against the All Blacks for violence. I'm wearing a bandana. I look like a prisoner on day leave from Long Bay, but don't push me. So I walked towards them and said, is there a problem, boys? And they looked at me... <laughs> I said, no, no problem, you know, and I don't know, I don't know, I have no clue why I insist on wearing it, Um, although I don't wear it on, you know, all occasions, for example, when I'm graduating classes from Sydney University, that would distract from the moment, when I'm at a funeral or a wedding, that would distract from the moment, who's the dickhead with the bandana on this occasion, Um, but I generally like wearing it and I feel, when I'm not wearing it, like I just feel like... I don't know, I feel like, I, I feel, naked's not the right word, but something along those lines.
1: So, writing. You're uh, Australia's best-selling uh, non-fiction writer, and there's plenty of people who write history in Australia, but uh, your history succeeds because it's driven so powerfully by the stories. Mm. Well, what makes a great story?
0: Very interesting. Twists and turns in the roads is one, overcoming of great obstacles is another. In terms of the telling of the story, I have very strong theories on this, and my theories have developed over the years, but I, the essence of it is I came under the influence of an American writer by the name of Gary Smith, who came out to Australia in the year 2000 and for a year, and he's a writer for Sports Illustrated, and he, when he would write for Sports Illustrated, he's since retired. But he'd write five times a year 10,000 word feature pieces and circulation would always spike, they reckon 65,000 because the Gary Smith article was in there, a feature piece. And I used to read his stuff and I'd have the unpleasant sensation, realisation, that his stuff was much better than my stuff. And I'd read it and I'd go, why is his stuff so much better than my stuff? And he and I were mates and he would teach me. And he basically his line was to apply the devices and disciplines of fiction and apply them to non-fiction. So when I say to your listeners or to students I occasionally lecture informally about fiction and non-fiction, when I say fiction, you think of flights of fancy and Dickens and Tolstoy and colour and movement and imagination. And when I say non-fiction, there's a tendency, hey, on the 23rd of October, they landed, in the air, and on the 24th of October, the king arrived. <laughs> Just the fax man. And his basic premise to me was that if you can tell a story in a manner that puts the reader in the moment, it is so much more powerful because even when you're reading Dickens, when I, which is the greatest work for me is Great Expectations by Charles Dickens. When you're reading that, you're expectations, it is staggering. He is a writer of such compelling genius that none of us are fit to tie his bootlaces. But when you're reading his fictional works, there's nevertheless a tiny voice which whispers, This didn't happen. There was no Miss Havisham. There was no wedding cake. And yet, if you can do a story, a non-fiction story like Batavia, where, or better still, Burke and Wills, the the book that I'm wildly promoting at the moment. You have the situation, Burke and Wills start off from from Melbourne, they get to to Cooper's Creek, they leave behind five men, four of them go to, to the Gulf of Carpentaria and back. Before they leave Cooper's Creek, Burke says to William Bray, you five men stay here for three months, if we're not here for three months... Then, then leave. Wills takes him aside and says, stay here for four months. Four months and four days later, at 10 a.m. on the morning of the 21st of April, 1861, William Bray climbs the hill. The wind is blowing from the east. It's a hot breeze. And he looks to the north, hoping against hope to see a flock of cockatoos suddenly arise in alarm because men are coming their way. There's nothing, just the wind which whispers to him, you're all alone. He goes back down. He says to the men, we're out. They leave. And here is the story, the guts of the story. At 7 p.m. that night, the shadows are lengthening. The sun's going down. Old man Cooper's Creek, she just keeps rolling, a rolling along. And into this abandoned clearing, stagger, three men and two camels, all of them more dead than alive. It's Burke and Wills and one other, John King. And Burke's in the lead and he shouts out, Cooey, coo, 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 they're gone. And he looks to the embers, the fire, puts his hand on it, it's still warm. They look to the bar tree and there is carved the letters, D-I-G. And they can still see the sap running from the bottom of those letters because it was cut so recently. They dig down... They find the supplies that have been left for them and the note from William Bray to say, we left at 10am on the morning of the 21st of April, they know that date, they know they've missed them by nine hours. And so as you're reading that, I mean, where did that account come from? It came from everywhere. It came from... From letters, from diaries, from journals, from witnesses, and by using, as I do, four or five researchers, on that one, four researchers, going hard for the better part of a year, trawling through every recorded document that there is. All of, most of which is available digitally, you can put together what happened. And so you can tell now, with enough work and with enough intellectual prowess, which I don't possess, but my researchers do, and the energy to do it. I'm far more the craft of the storyteller, but you can actually reconstitute whole conversations and put it all together, and then back it up with two thousand footnotes. And there, if you do it right, you get a big voice which says, oh, "Andrew, I can't believe this happened, but it did happen." That footnote points to an original document, diary, journal, letter, article in a newspaper. And what a lot of people don't appreciate is how, in the in the modern age of the internet, the facility with digital digital research, how quickly, how powerful it is. One of my researchers, Angus, found an account, I think it was from 1834, in the Argus, from an 80-year-old man who had been four years old, or thereabouts, 10 years old, whatever it was, a very young boy, holding his father's hand at the time that Burke and Wills departed. And he never forgot, looking through the forest of legs, And there was a man with the biggest, most lustrous, big black beard I'd ever seen on the back of this camel, this exotic animal. And hanging from his right belt was a huge pistol. And you could get, you know, so again, Mm. take the reader back to the moment, to put them in the moment. And so my constant notations to my researchers is SSS, sites, sites. Sounds, smells. What are the sights? What are the sounds? What are the smells that I can, that you can find that are legitimate, that are can be authenticated? Ideally, you know, attached to a contemporary document to say this is what it was like at that time. L and and B. What are, what, what can we do to make it live and breathe? To to note about something, and I used to study Dickens, and Dickens would have what I call, this is just my notation, a dick hook, so that if he was writing about Andrew Lee, he would find something about your face, about your form, that frequently humorous, now not in your case, but I remember one one of Dickens' people that I remember reading he had a nose and a mouth like a question mark the nose was so bent and the mouth was the the point at the end of the question mark and he would make references so that when this character came back into the into the uh into the account he'd make a reference to that so the reader would go aha uh-huh, aha uh-huh. so i look at you know when I'm when I'm studying John Monash, when I'm studying uh, Mawson. You know what a, what's their dick hook? What's the thing to bring them alive? Less so those because they are the feature people. They are the ones that are th- they're the ones that are the they come all the time. But the lesser characters and you know using the researchers and it, it's an expensive exercise, but. I, I'm, I, you know, I come out well in front because I, they're big budget books, but they make, you know, they sell, they sell a lot. But I, I'm proud of the amount of work that goes into it. For example, with the story of Douglas Mawson, there is a killer story. Again, it's a remarkably similar with Mawson in terms of just missing the boat. With that Mawson, when he came, when he was with uh, Ninnis and Mertz, and he was 180 miles from base. And then Ninnis falls down a crevasse, Mertz dies and he's on his own and he's got to make his way back to Mawson's hut and he comes over the lip of the hill to see just in time to see the ship departing and he looks down and there are the four men that have been left behind to last the winter on the one in a hundred chance he's still alive. And there's a fabulous account. I wanted it to be true that as Mawson comes down the slopes, and I've been there, you know, uh, and they, the four men look up to see this speck coming down the slope. He stumbles down towards them, they rush up towards him, and there is this before them, this extraordinary frozen figure with this bushy beard and wild man from Borneo, frozen wild man from Borneo, and one of them says to him, Which one are you? Killer line. Killer line. But it never happened. Because when I when I look for it, you know, I go I say to my researchers, you know, well, we've got to keep digging back, 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 back. And that line showed up in an account from memory, nineteen 34 37 but it's in no contemporary account whatsoever you know i i think i can't remember who the writer was who invented it or put it in wherever when it first showed up but it bloody well didn't happen and i'm careful on that and so when when for example again i've had i've had I've had uh, good review I've had great reviews. I've had very ordinary reviews, and I'm not. A- I've had a few attacking reviews. These days, I don't read them. I don't. Uh, well, if they're a very good review, I saw I got a great review in the Australian the other day, so I read that. But but one, one when uh, I basically I don't read bad reviews because I don't want to lose a day of my time mm. thrashing th- thrashing my way through it. But there was a there was one of my Ned Kelly book that was reviewed by the Times of London. And my publisher was very pleased that the Times of London would deign to review one of my books, sent me the review, and I thought, oh, this will be good. And, you know, the, the opening line was something like, you know, strained strained prose, flamboyant, colloquially, oh, Jesus, bad review, bad review, and I said, no, I won't read it. But just before I flicked it off, one breakout quote hit me in the eyes, that I've never forgotten and the Times of London said, this is how an historian would write... If he was on ecstasy. <laughs> but, but, the, but the one, the, the review that I treasure, that, uh, that points to the, illustrates the point I'm trying to make, I gave an account of Ned Kelly, and there was a fellow, I can't remember his name, lovely man, historian, that gave a review in The Age, and his opening line about my book on Ned Kelly was, this book has more emotional resonance than Peter Carey's book on The Kelly Gang which, geez, you know, given that book won the Booker Prize, I'll go with that. But he went on, he said something like, with one caveat. And that caveat, that my word's not his, Fitzsimons makes shit up. And that was, and he gave an account, he gave an account of the, at Stringy Bar Creek where Ned Kelly, at the head of the Kelly Gang, bursts from deep cover, gun, pointing the gun at two constables, says, hands in the air, throw down your weapons. One of the constables throws down his teaspoon, which is the only weapon he had. Constable Lonigan goes for his gun and Ned Kelly, from 40 yards away, best shot south of the Murray, shoots, hits him in the eye, kills him, looks down upon him and realises this is Const- Constable Lonigan, who five years earlier, Ned had taken on five policemen, fought them for 30 minutes and the only way they could subdue Ned was for Constable Lonigan to pull down his pants and grab him by the testicles and hold on. And in my account, recounted by the reviewer, he said, fabulous account, Ned looks down upon him and says, uh, realises this is Constable Lonigan, and that that he'd had pain in his testicles every day for the last five years, but it doesn't hurt anymore now that he's killed him. And the reviewer said, fantastic account, I was right there, so colourful, so wonderful, how extraordinary. Sadly, there is no uh, factual uh, evidence for it. Yes, uh, may I just point out that if you go to page 5 of the Argus, top right-hand corner... August the third, eighteen eighty, in the second last interview that Ned Kelly ever gave, he said and he recounted, you know, Lonigan grabbed me in the in the most cruel and disgusting manner, and I had pain there every day until the day that I killed him, you know. And the and the reviewer was so apologetic. So I said, listen, it's fine. You've given me the best review I've ever had in my life. But if you could just, you know, correct the record... And he did, and it was fine. But it, but that's the sort of kind of stuff, that if you've got enough researchers intensively looking for the stuff that I want... Mm. And so I'm always... I always say to them, anything that looks like dialogue, I'm doing mutiny on the bounty bounty at the moment, and that is like Eureka Stockade, like uh, Burke and Wills. Bounty is fantastic because... It was so absorbing to the people at the time that they, anybody who had anything to do with it wrote it down, was in the diary, was in the letter. Those diaries and those letters were kept and in all three of those cases I've mentioned, bless their cotton socks, they had court cases, court marshals and they've kept the record. Batavia was the other one. I'll never work on a better, pure story than Batavia, the shipwreck of the Batavia off the coast of Western Australia. They tortured the murderers and got confessions from them and those, those those accounts survive to this day. And again, I tell the story, I mean I've, I've always said Batavia is the best story I've ever worked on, and when I went to Holland, the, the primary source for the story of the Batavia is Pelsart's journal. So Admiral Francisco Pelsart was the admiral of the fleet that's on the Batavia when it hits the reefs off the coast of Western Australia. And he writes a lot of it down, and the and the, the testimony—it's all there. So I went to the Hague, in Am- south of Amsterdam, and had, my researchers had lined it up, I and mean, they put all their energy into it. I said, "I don't—I I, I want my time going into writing. I don't want to organise what time. And just tell me when." And so they'd done—they'd done it all. You know, Mr. Fitzsimons will write, blah blah. So I arrive. Soon enough, somebody greets me, takes me to this room, and this old guy brings for me Pelsart's journal. 380 year old and I can't read ancient Dutch but I just want to be in the same room as it I want to look at it I want to feel it and I want to feel like the holy bible if I was a religious person is before me anyway without any ceremony whatsoever they take me to the room and they bring me Pelsart's journal and they put it in front of me and this old guy's turning to go and I say excuse me He says, yes yes I said, look, I really appreciate you trusting me and I know you've tested my bona fides, but I can't help but feel that there should be six very stern curators looking at me, one of whom should be armed, that you're trusting me with a document nearly 400 years old and I'm really pleased that you've trusted me, but I don't think you're taking me seriously. You know, you're not not protecting this document (laughs) the way you should be. And this old guy looks at me and he says, son, we've had a lot of shipwrecks. (laughs) <laughs> and his point was that you know while the Batavia shipwreck may be a big deal to me from the point of view of Dutch history, you know they they were they were ruled the seas for four hundred years. Um, the it wasn't that big. But I think to to be fair now, when the the Dutch government flew Lisa and I over to Holland late last year and I gave two lectures on The Shipwreck of the Batavia to packed D- Dutch audiences and I thought it was like a Dutchman writing about Gallipoli coming to lecture Australians about Gallipoli but I, I told them, you know, I said this is the best story in the history of the world and they agreed and it's now, that book's now selling really well in Holland because it's, I suppose you, you know, people are constantly putting stories before me saying this is a great story, that's a great story And I look at it, it's not enough that it be a great story for me. It has to pass two other tests. Will it sell? That's the primary one for me. But also for me, is there enough documentation that I can turn over new stuff, bring it to life, or or at the very least, tell it in a new way to bring it to life? And I I sort of feel that in the way that I do stuff... I sort of feel like I've developed this particular diamond tipped drill which is laser guided which is allowing me to go into old abandoned gold mines and find fresh gold and so in a way, I am I am lifting my output. I, I've gone from one book a year to two books a year, in part because I want to go into all those gold mines before any other bastard can get there, to scour the land, to find the stuff. it's not, And it's not that the stuff was not previously available, but it was only previously available if you moved to Canberra and went through and, and lived there. I mean, when I... One of my more trenchant critics in the military historian ranks, um, when I first approached him about writing Kokoda, he said, you know, well, you, you can't do this book unless you move to Canberra for six months. And I said, well, I'm not going to move to Canberra for six months, but I'm going to hire a researcher. And I did. Glenda Lynch, best in the business, found all the stuff that I most love. Um, and it's it's something that, it's the passion of my life. And it's something that even occasionally I mention, you know, the pressures that, it go with you know the life i've chosen there was one particular day that will remain nameless but about 5 years ago it must have been i was under heavyweight attack i was being attacked for all, from all sides and it just so happened that you know the phone was ringing the texts were going off the emails the tweets of i was under attack really serious attack and it just so happened that that was the day i was writing the episode of Ned Kelly inside the inn at Glen Rowan. And I had all the material before me of all of the accounts and what, in many ways, a great day I had because I was bringing... You know, Ned and I were in the inn at Glen (laughs) Rowan together. The sounds of the emails and the texts and the tweets was sort of appropriate scattergun (laughs) pellets hitting, breaking down (laughs) windows, but Ned and I had to find a way out Yeah, so, and the other thing I do, I mean, again, an example of doing what I do in the internet age is that I frequently go into iconic stories to, as one of my readers put it, make the skeletons dance, to bring to life long lost stories or breathe fresh life into them. And what I discovered when I started out on the Ned Kelly book is that Australia is a wash with Ned Kelly nutters. There are dozens of them, and they more or less all hate each other. <laughs> or at least camps of Ned, Ned Kelly hate other camps because they differ on details and all that. And there's only two two that there are universally respected. Now, one of them I dedicated the book to. His name's Ian Jones, and he's now 90 years old. And when he was helping me, he was 86 years old, but he'd been studying Ned Kelly from the age of seven and he was the world expert on done his own book. Couldn't have been more generous to me, and I dedicated the book to him, just as I've dedicated my book on Burke and Wills to Dave Phoenix, who I think is the foremost Burke and Wills expert in the country. And there is one other person, however, that Ned Kelly, that the Kelly nutters respect almost more than Ian because she's so well, she's an extraordinary woman and her name is Sharon Hollingsworth and I knew from the way they all spoke about it that I'd have to get to her. So when I'd finished the manuscript to the best of my ability and my researcher's ability and Ian Jones's ability, I wrote to wrote to Sharon saying, you know, I'd like you to look at my manuscript, um, whatever the fee you propose is fine. And she wrote back 20 minutes later saying, I, I knew you'd come to me and, yes, I'll have this back to you within 48 hours. Now, the interesting thing about Sharon Hollingsworth is... She lives in a trailer park not a caravan not a caravan park in a trailer park where is that trailer park North Carolina in her life she's never left North Carolina why because well she's not she's not a wealthy woman but 25 years ago 20 years ago in the age of the internet starting out she came across the Ned Kelly story has devoured her days with it ever since and sure enough I sent this Manuscript to her, 48 hours later, back it came with 25 errors on my part, backed by documentary evidence, links to photographs of the best in the business, saying, and, you know, have you thought of this angle? And it's it's a, only in the internet age could you have an expert on the other side of the world who could who could do that and not and never have set foot in Australia and when I tried to pay her she wouldn't she wouldn't it would somehow sully sully her work she did allow me however I'm proud to I got her a new computer so she wouldn't have to go to the local library which is where she had done most of her internet study and it's just it's just amazing but it's it's something that is such a powerful tool and one of my one of the great australian historians who remain nameless let's just call him david day he he's been very helpful to me and he at one point i remember a conversation two or three years ago i said what are you up to he said i'm about to go to Canberra for three weeks i said why and he said oh well because i've got i'm trawling through something something to for the book that he was working on probably chifley or Curtin or whichever one it was And I said, but surely, you know, you can do that on the internet. He said, well, I could, but that's the way I like to do it. I like to go there. And and that's probably the best way to do it if you've got the time to do it. But for me, to get the information that I want when so much of it is digitalised, and it's not me that does it, it's my researchers that do it, but it's so powerful, if expensive, when you're paying researchers, but they're the best in the business.
1: When do you write? Are you a morning person? You get up, have a cup of coffee, and get get going.
0: I write one minute before I, one minute after I wake up, and I'm mostly writing two minutes before I go to bed. And it's not that I do it all day, every day, because I do many other things. But I have a notion in my head that I must harvest the freshness. And what I mean by that is, when I wake up, I can see everything clearly. I can, I know what I have to do, and uh, so I. In that first four or five hours of the day, I get a lot of writing done. I then like to have a nap. So you and I were with, with each other in Melbourne a couple of hours ago. Flying up, I had a sleep, purposefully good sleep. and I'm Same. And, and, but still, I'm fresh then. I'm fresh. And I'll, um, I'll head off shortly. And again, I'll get three or four hours in before I've got to do this speaking thing tonight. I'll do that at seven. I'll be back at nine. I'll have enough freshness to put in 90 minutes. And people would say, you know what, you're gonna be writing at 10, 30, 11 o'clock midnight. Gee, you work hard. And the point is, it doesn't feel like working hard because it feels like, you bloody beauty, I've got two or three hours free that I can do this. And I do a lot of my writing in a local cafe. So there's a cafe, Lisa and I live on the lower North Shore and somehow or other, four or five years ago, I fell into the practice of this particular cafe, this particular corner table. And I'm frequently there at twenty past six in the morning. There's a gym next door that I go into for forty-five minutes in the morning, and I frequently leave at two p.m. Can't go home, have a nap, and start again. But somehow or other, when I'm in that corner table, I can see things clearly. I know what I'm doing, and it feels like there was a, you, you probably given that you're you must be forty. What are you? Forty-five. Forty-five. You will remember Padraic P. McGuinness, who was a famous writer for The Herald. And when I joined The Herald, he was this huge man, old man with a big bushy beard and a very smelly cigar. And he he would write every day these quite dense pieces in op-ed in the Sydney Morning Herald. And I said to him once when I was brave enough, why do you write like every day? And he said to me, son, so many stories so little time. And I thought at the time, as I was heading off to a drunken lunch, you know, that's ah, a bit weird. That's ah, a bit of a weird approach to take. Now that I'm 56 years old, I get it. I feel like there are so many stories that I want to tell, so many books that I want to write. And it's not that I, I'm running out of time, but I do love the not only the songs of Bob Dylan, but the poetry of Bob Dylan and there's one particular poem and a line out of that poem, he talks about this ocean of hours, I'm all the time drinking and he wrote that when he was 23 and I recognise in that that when you're in your 20s there's an ocean of hours and if you waste time doing bullshit, doesn't matter, there's an ocean of hours ahead of you. When you're in your 30s there's a huge lake of hours. Um, And now that I'm in my 50s, there's a very large dam of ours. I've got plenty of time left, but not as much time as I used to have, and I want to tell the stories that I want to tell. And one of the things you you asked me about, you know, my decision in 2007 to be a stay-at-home father uh, instead of doing breakfast radio, that was the second-best personal decision I've taken. The best personal decision I've taken was three and a half years ago, stopping drinking and because I loved the grog and strange given how much I loved it and given how much I drank very odd that I did not prove to be an alcoholic well at least not an alcoholic in the sense of needing it you know that having that sort of shaking need to drink because I stopped drinking 14th of September 2014 and best decision I've ever taken because I haven't missed it a single day since and again earlier this year in January Libby my research one of my researchers and i were on the birdsville track in a four-wheel drive on the trail of burke and wills and we blew a tire at 90 kilometers an hour swerved all over the road i stopped it crashed you know and it was a huge toyota land cruiser how do you get the thing off the back you know in this appalling 45 degree heat january heat in the end i was reduced to the worst thing an australian male can do I had to get out the instruction manual and I had to go through it <laughs> very carefully and work it out and those bloody Toyota four-wheel drives because you may know there's a, there's a thing that you get out from behind the seat and it's got this tiny like key on the end of it and you have to thread it above the number plate and put it in and put it in the thing and wind it down. Anyway, 90 minutes later, I succeeded in getting the tyre down changing the tyre, starting the engine, proceeding. Libby was relieved, I was beside myself with relief and she said, I've got two beers here, would you like one? You know, they were icy cold beers. And I said, no, sorry, I don't drink. And it was about an hour later, I just I was driving along and I thought, Jesus, that's weird that a man who drank as much as I did should be offered a beer after being the momentary hero of the day in saving, saving the show, getting the show back on the road. And it didn't even occur to me to drink. How did that happen? And mm. again, I say it's the best decision I've ever made because it's improved everything from my productivity to my marriage to my fathering to everything I do. I'm I can think so much more clearly um, and so much more. I'm so much more productive.
1: What's a good day in terms of output?
0: Well, that's not a bad segue because there's a guy called Geoffrey Barnard who was famous. He was a famous... I'm never sure, quite sure what a dyspeptic is. You're more educated than me. You'll probably recognise. He's dyspeptic, a severe alcoholic, I think. He was a dyspeptic. He was a writer in England and he, in 91 he came out to Australia, courtesy of Fairfax, and John Alexander, the then editor-in-chief, said, look after this 75-year-old alcoholic. He's so brilliant. He'll write for us at the Herald... You look after him for the next ten days. Go where he goes, and I did, and I was always pulling him out of the bourbon and beefsteak, and you know taking him to lunch and dinners and so forth. And he was always pissed as a newt. But it's something he said to me, he said, he said, I start every day six gins shy of feeling normal, and when I get the six gins into me, I feel normal. But then there's a slow leak, and when I uh, when I I need to keep filling up all day long. Well, I start every day 8 to 10 hours of flat-out writing, shy of feeling like I've had a good day. And when I get the 8 to 10 hours writing in, I feel good. If I get 10 to 12, I feel great some days, and particularly, you know, if I get 14 hours in, it's fantastic. But the best of all is flying to London, because on that 22-hour flight, I I can really do 17 hours of concentrated work and I don't know why I can concentrate so well at that height with maybe no internet, I don't know, but I can just, every hour seems like it's worth three hours because by the time I land in London, the first thing I do is make sure I save all the work I've got, send it to myself on the net to preserve it because 17 hours on a flight to London is a good week and a half's work back in Australia.
1: So, how many words would you be writing a day?
0: If I'm focused, five, six thousand, I guess.
1: So finally, uh, Peter, what advice would you give to your teenage self?
0: That's a good question. I don't feel like I've made a lot of you know errors. You know, so like I mean, there's nothing. There's very few regrets that I have. I mean, basically, keep keep going. Don't worry so much about you know what's going to happen. You'll be all right, and I have been all right. I, I wrote a piece for the Herald a few years ago about. Bob Dwyer, our Wallaby coach, uh, his great line was, don't die wondering, don't die wondering. And there's only about three or four things that I really positively regret, and I listed them in the Herald. One was, in 2001, I was speaking in Invercargill in the southern tip of New Zealand at a dinner, and it was a Wednesday night, and my flight out was not till the Friday, so I had the whole Thursday and I, I sat next to a helicopter pilot, and I said, "What do you do?" And he said, "Ah, oh, my job is I take helicopters up, and, and what I do is I fly over Milford Sound up in the up in the high mountains, and I look for great uh, collections of of snow, and then I drop sticks of dynamite in them to cause avalanches. I make sure there's nobody there. But he, what he said was, "Would you like to come up with me tomorrow and throw sticks of dynamite into into the mountains to cause avalanches?" And I said, oh. Jeez, would I? And I had to say no, because I was right on deadline for Nancy Wake. I had to get that done, and I've always regretted it. And, and one other, just a quick one I regret, that the last serious game of rugby I played, I was picked for the World 15 to play against the All Blacks' third test centenary game at Eden Park. And so I was on the bench, and seven minutes to go. Troy Coker goes down. I come on, seven minutes to go in the deciding test match, the World 15 was losing by five points with six, seven minutes to go. And about 40 metres out from their line, I, I, I ripped the ball off one of the All Blacks. And I instead of going the open side, I went the blind side. I go <laughs> down the blind side and I'm through. And there are the backs looking up, the All Black backs, full back, be, between me and the line. And I had this thought in my head, this is the moment. I've always known this moment was going to come. It's time... For a chip kick, <laughs> a Stevie Mortimer chip kick. I've earned the right to do this. I could do this, and maybe I could chip it over the fullback's head, regather, score the winning try. And then I thought, nah, too risky. <laughs> so I hit the drop, dropped my shoulder into the fullback, went down, laid the ball back, and went out to our backs. Somebody dropped it. That was the end of the match. But on my on my deathbed, I will still regret. I didn't chip kick against the All Blacks. That could have been my moment. And it was a one in a hundred chance. What are the chances I I could do the first chip kick of my life, regather and score? But I still regret that (laughs) that I didn't do it.
1: Well, it's something you used to believe but no longer do.
0: I used to believe in God and Christianity and all of that stuff. I Was absolutely certain about it. But then, look, you know, at the age of fifteen or sixteen, you read Bertrand Russell. You later on you read Richard Dawkins. You think about it, and you realise that you know, I mean Christian people. Uh, I mean Lisa makes the point that many of my closest friends are very heavyweight Christians, and you know my father was a very heavyweight Christian. And and I don't. There's a there's a brand of Christianity which smells of pumpkin scones that I love. That is, you know, it's a really benign warm loving embracing kind belief system but there's another brand of christianity that is mean and 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 exclusive and belittling of others that don't believe and all that I, I, i detest that and you know so we've We've come through the whole same-sex marriage thing and a lot of people say, you know, I, God said between man and a woman. Well, God didn't say that. But, you know, if that is what you believe, that's fine. Don't marry somebody of your own gender. But let the rest of us get on with our lives without, without you trying to impose your God on our belief systems, on, our, on the way we live our lives, particularly not in government. When are you most happy? Surrounded by my family.
1: I think you've said of uh, Lisa that uh, marrying Lisa makes you the president of the men batting above their, wa- their weight club.
0: Punching above their weight. i the long-time president of Australian men punching well above our weight club. We just, we've just celebrated 25 years of marriage. We renewed our nuptials. We didn't have a pre-nuptial agreement. We had a re-nuptial agreement, and we did it. It was great.
1: What's the most important thing you do in your life to stay mentally and physically healthy? Uh...
0: I've turned into a gym junkie. I've turned into somebody that, you know, I've turned into everything I used to despise as a young man. I've turned into a teetotaling, non-smoking gym junkie who believes in health and physical fitness, and I do, I do it all. And so that's not the way I thought I'd be living in my 50s, but, but a great friend of mine, Dave the dentist, pointed out to me that there are no fat 75-year-olds, and he pointed to a friend of ours, Kenny, and said, live like Kenny does, look at Kenny, and Kenny's, Kenny's the guy who actually runs Gulliver's Travel and he he's, he's, doesn't have an ounce of fat on him, and if I had to put money on a guy that will cruise through the age of, to the age of, of, of 100, it would be Kenny, and I want to be a dangerous 100-year-old.
1: Since there's no alcohol, and you gave up sugar as well, I understand, uh, do you have any guilty pleasures?
0: Sugar. I have the guilty pleasures of... I'm off sugar entirely, but I, whereas I never break on alcohol, I do break on sugar, so I, I do sneak the odd Kit Kat.
1: And finally, Peter, which person or experience has most shaped your view of living an ethical life?
0: My mother and my father, those two. Just wonderful people, and I, as I started out this interview saying, I'll never be their equal, but they, I, they, I, they set an example I strain to try and live up to.
1: Peter Fitzsimons, thanks so much for sharing your wisdom and your stories on the Good Life podcast today.
0: Thank you, Andrew. It's been a pleasure.
1: An epilogue. I'd wanted to ask Peter Fitzsimons which authors most inspire him, but time ran short, so I skipped the question. Later, I went back to him on email to ask it. He replied with four names, Charles Dickens, PJ O'Rourke, Hunter S. Thompson and Bob Dylan. Thanks for listening to this week's episode of The Good Life. We love getting feedback, so please leave us a rating or a comment on Apple Podcasts, formerly known as iTunes. Next week, I'll be back with another inspiring guest to discuss living a
0: happier, healthier and more ethical life.